Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. Welcome to Health Matters. This is Dr. Ned Hoke today. Joining, uh, we're joined by uh, Dr. Robert Lustig the uh, author of the book in, in question that we've, you've heard a good deal about already at the beginning of the program, the book's called Metabolical, the, the, lure, the Lure and Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. So, Dr. Lustig, wel- welcome to Health Matters Radio, and thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dr. Hogue. Thank you for having me. When I first began to dig into this book, I immediately occurred to me that I was reading a kind of metabolic silent spring by Rachel Carson or Our Stolen Future by Theo Colburn, a book on endocrine disruption, both of the texts with deep ecological consciousness, you might say. So I was wondering, did... I don't have quite a question really exactly, but where did your ecological consciousness begin in terms of this topic? Did did you, I mean, obviously it's obviously grown over the years, but is do you feel like you're in, a, in, a, in an alignment, let's say, with the broader ecological movement? Well, let's put it this way. I didn't come to this issue with an agenda. I followed the science. I went where the science pointed me. And in 2006, 2007, you know, that was sort of my breakthrough from a scientific standpoint in understanding this molecule that has sort of taken me on this, you know, fantastic journey, you know, from, you know, the ultra microscopic to the, you know, planetary, you know, this molecule called fructose. Right. This sweet molecule in sugar, which as it turns out, has absolutely no value in a human diet, or for that matter, in any animal cell on the planet. It is a holdover from our plant ancestors. Mm. So the question is, if that's the case, how come it's pervading every single food in the grocery store? So my epiphany on the science came in 2006, 2007. And that's when I started talking about it, and that's when things started, you know, generating some interest. And then in 2009, I did that YouTube video, right. you know, which was a, supposedly for a, a lay audience, you know, it was a mini-med school for the public from my, you know, home institution, UCSF. And that's when I started getting pushback. Mm-hmm. And I got pushback not just from the industry, as I might have anticipated, but I got pushback from a lot of scientists. And these were guys and girls who should have known better. And I was kind of surprised and taken aback at how vehement the responses were. You know, like Lustig's an idiot, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and a sensationalist and, you know, a, a fair, um, uh, you know, n- not looking at the data, but, you know, immediately casting aspersions. 
And the more I dug, the more I realized that there was, in fact, a move afoot, uh, pretty much sponsored and uh, promoted by the food industry uh, to uh, maintain the status quo. And that and that that revelation really really hit in uh, 2012 uh, when we published our nature comment, uh, the toxic truth about sugar, which I did with my colleagues at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF, right. Laura Schmidt and Claire Brin. Um, since that time, uh, Laura has gotten death threats. Wow. Uh, I've been pilloried in the media by my own colleagues. Uh, but never about the science, just about, you know, sort of the, 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 the top of the subject matter. And so it, it, it's become more and more clear that there's, there's a, uh, you know, there's something going on underneath. And so that only sort of revved my engine a little bit more. And I realized, you know, that, um, the, the message is important, but the messenger has to deliver it. And so I sort of said, you know, I got to shoulder this. And uh, this book is really the book I couldn't write while I was in clinical practice because this book names names. You know, this is a half, <laughs> Abs- absolutely half science, half, half science and half expose. You know, if it was a Hollywood tell all, it would be called a kiss and tell. But this about diabetes, so it's really a piss and tell. Okay. Okay. Well, the the. The uh, and and part of the part of the charm for me, uh, uh, Professor Lustig, is ex- ex- exactly that: is that you've you've picked up the challenge. And for those of us in clinical practice who've been work trying to work with the conventional medical system, and uh, w- when we've brought up the issues of nu- uh, nutritional therapy and brought up the issue of nutritional needs, when we've spoken to the vast majority of, of the physicians when we're trying to do complementary. Uh, like services for our clients, we, we, we're brushed off, we're uh, dismissed, we're, we're not even, our phone calls are not even, not even answered, and even though we're licensed medical practitioners. So I, 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 I for, for the last 40 years, have felt the heavy, dead hand of, of resistance to the, the struggle that you write about in terms of the, that the, that they were living in in this culture. Now you 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 start your story, or that is you start you say that of course the the, the issue of sugar. And you did a wonderful book on sugar, uh, 2013, I guess it was called Fat Chance. But and of course, as you mentioned earlier, the the bitter truth uh, presentation on YouTube. But anyway, you you start the story back in the early uh, 1900s. But then you actually, more specifically, you say the last 50 years. That this there's been a whole industrialization of the food supply and industrialization of the presentation of cheap food. So maybe that might be a place to sort of put 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 one oar in and and ask you to describe the development of this uh, cheap food environment, which is now you know corporatized and and uh, and has built a whole whole society around itself. So maybe you could start. We could start there. Sure. So. It's very interesting. Um, on March 4th of this year, um, Tom Vilsack, who was our agriculture secretary under Obama, right. uh, was uh, undergoing his repeat confirmation hearing for being the agriculture secretary under Biden. 
And he said something that was so startling to me that really sort of pulled it all together. What he said was that we as a country need to pivot from the concept of food security to the concept of nutritional security. Now, okay. there's a lot <laughs> in that statement. Okay, we're all ears. That's a loaded statement. Um, because in doing that, uh, number one, he's recognizing that our food is a problem. That, in fact, it's not because we need more calories, because, you know, we got an obesity problem even more than we have a food insecurity problem now, and so does the rest of the world, in fact. <clears throat> but what it's also saying is that he's tacitly admitting that the food that he was in charge of for eight years under the Obama administration was crap. Hmm. And now he's going to try to do something about it. Hmm. Because otherwise, why would we need to pivot hmm. from food security to nutritional security? So the question is, why was it crap and why didn't anybody do anything about it? And that's, you know, where, you know, sort of I come in on this book, Metabolical. You know, I mean, I could not have asked Vilsack for a more prescient quote. Um, he actually gave me one back in 2011 about the fact that it's about calories, but not all calories are the same. He said that in the same sentence. And it's like, but if it's about calories, but all calories aren't the same, then how can it be about calories? So, you know, this is, this is double speak at the highest level of, you know, of our government. And the fact is that they don't get it. They don't get it. In 1971, it started. It really, there was a turning point. We were we were having a problem with processed food through the 50s and 60s, really after World War II, because uh, the Farm Bill, you know, subsidized commodity crops, and you know we were turning our attention to malnutrition. We had figured out how to keep a destitute population alive during the Depression and the Dust Bowl, you know, with the Farm Bill by processing the food in the Northeast and shipping bags of flour to the Southwest where it could be baked up and served there. Um, but in 1971, <clears throat> something happened. Richard Nixon, um, you know, was picking up on Johnson's War on Poverty, and he was under, uh, there was a lot of political unrest going on in the country. Indeed. And to Nixon's credit, and to Nixon's credit, he knew that fluctuating food prices caused political unrest. In fact, when the price of rice went up in Thailand, they overthrew their government. Wow. All right? So All right. in 2008. So fluctuating food prices caused political unrest. And so he told his agriculture secretary, Earl Butts, to make food cheap. So Butts went to the heartland, to Iowa and Kansas and Nebraska and all, and he said three things, row to row, furrow to furrow, get bigger, get out. That's what he said. And so that was the initiation of a practice which had not really been done up to that point. That practice was called monoculture. Uh, up to that point, I remember this when I was a kid, because I used to watch the GE College Bowl in the early 1960s, and they had all of these um, 
commercials from ADM and from, you know, uh, other, you know, uh, major food producers about how they tilled the land. And back then, they, the government used to pay farmers not to grow certain crops. And so what the farmers would do is they would rotate the fields. And that was very specifically so that they didn't deplete all of the nutrients. But in 1971, Butts told the, uh, you know, the, the farmers of America, you know, you're going to have to increase productivity and you're going to get paid on the volume. That's what he told them. And so they went to monoculture. So now all the corn was in Iowa and all the cattle were in Kansas. That's monoculture. Problem is, if you grow all the corn in Iowa all the time, you deplete the soil, you turn the soil from soil to dirt. Dirt is dead. Soil is alive. Soil makes things that make corn grow. Dirt means that the corn would die unless you gave it something to grow, and that's called nitrogen fertilizer. And so we started spraying all of these uh, fields with ammonium nitrate and other nitrogen fertilizers and pesticides, of course, to basically keep these crops from uh, uh, you know, wilting and dying right there in the field. In the meantime, we had all the cattle in Kansas, and they were all now on CAFOs, uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, uh, basically lying in their own excrement. And what were they eating? Well, they were eating the corn that was being shipped by railroad car from Iowa back to Kansas. But that's not enough because there's not enough nutrients in corn. And so they were getting sick, so we had to start feeding them antibiotics just to be able to get them large enough so that we could then slaughter them. So that was the start of nitrogen fertilizer and antibiotics because we took the cows off the farm. Now, what that did was it made food cheap. No argument. But what it also did was it poisoned us and it poisoned the environment. Mm. Mm. So in the process of developing ultra-processed food, because, you know, we were subsidizing commodity crops, corn, wheat, soy, sugar, and we were now doing monoculture for volume, for quantity instead of quality, we had basically hijacked our farming system, and now we're creating disease both in us and in the animals and in the planet. And unfortunately... That is the business model today. This is what's wrong. This is underneath what is wrong. Then the question is, all right, how do you take that and turn it into disease in people? And that's what the book, you know, really touches on in great length. And that's really what I'm expert in. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, for, for those of us, again, who's, who are interested in the topic, the, the great gift of the, you're breaking down uh, exactly what you just said in terms of the the development of disease process, the the de the degradation of the potential of the righteous potential of mitochondria, et cetera. Um, so let's let's actually sort of begin to walk through the the book is in is in f uh, five parts, and so uh, just briefly, what I'm hoping we can do is is just look at each of the five parts and maybe choose a, a little salient uh, or meaningful piece. So let's let's start with part one and and talk about uh, uh, debunking modern medicine. Now this is of course uh, you you began to speak of it. Uh, you say some of your colleagues were uh, were push, pushing back on you, and of course what 
certainly I, that I have to believe that some of what that pushback created with you was some further resistance coming from your side, and and I suspect <laughs> that I suspect that modern medicine wouldn't be, wouldn't have been be debunked so much today by you if people had been a little bit more generous to you in terms of hearing hearing you out, but apparently they chose not Hard to, to say. Yeah, exactly. But hard, hard to say. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you're you're quite forthright. And of course, for those of us who've been in the medical field, for people to speak as you speak in this book, this is truly heresy and sacrilege. Uh, it, it, <laughs> so, of course, it's for those of us who've suffered the, you know, the heavy hand of this of this system, we, we, we're happy to hear it. But Let's let's talk about debunking modern medicine a little bit, and talk, so that well, maybe the, the first sure. chapter one is treatment is not cure. Tell, let's let's talk about that for a moment, and it's not even treatment. Say something about that if you would. So we have two kinds of diseases: we have acute diseases and we have chronic diseases. In general, modern medicine has gotten acute diseases reasonably right. Um, you know, surgeries, antibiotics for infections, things like that. We're even starting to, you know, figure out how to use CRISPR-Cas9 for genetic diseases like sickle cell. I'm very, you know, very excited about this stuff. Right. That's great. And I'm, I'm all for that. And I'm, you know, I'm very, very much attuned to it, you know, being a pediatric endocrinologist. You bet. However, we also have these things called chronic diseases, also known as non-communicable diseases. Let me name them for you. Type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, polycystic ovarian disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. These eight diseases now comprise 75% of the total health care budget of the United States. Wow. And, not, and none of them have a cure. So modern medicine throws medicines at each of these. And what I'm telling in this book is that those medicines do not treat the disease. They are treating the symptoms of disease. These diseases are actually not the diseases. These are what we call the diseases because they have ICD-11 codes and doctors get can bill for them. <laughs> but in fact, What's really going on is underneath, inside the cell, and that's what you know. Part two is about. We'll talk about in a minute. Yep. But LDL is not the problem. LDL is a symptom of the problem. And if you lower LDL, say with a statin, do you know how many days of life extra you get on average? A pretty small number, I'd guess. Four. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you get four. Right. Four days. All right. Uh, high blood pressure is not the problem. High blood pressure is a symptom of the problem. High blood glucose is not the problem. It is a symptom of the problem. Mm -hmm. In fact, there is a way to reverse diabetes, but it has nothing to do with medicine. Mm -hmm. In fact, all of these medicines are really covering up the problem. So it's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Might solve the headache ain't going to solve the brain tumor. So this is, this is a primal c c consideration that you've just made, what you've just said, Dr. Lustig. This is a, 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 a scandalous fact that the, uh, the, 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 the real human need represented in the discomforts and the, the uh, non-communicable diseases you, you just mentioned, these, which are 
uh, rampant. As you say, 75% of the uh, healthcare dollars are, are being attended to these issues. And, and to, to just simply cover them over is just, is, it would seem like an existential crime. So and it, it takes me back to my first professional training in Oxford. Um, and one of the things that I remember plainly is my, my first professor stood up and said, what we're interested in this training is to, we're interested in the causative factor. And he said, that's, that's the, the, the gift that we're trying to give you is to get to orient your mind to looking for the causative factor. And what you've just said in this part one, or part one of our talk anyway here, is that people are not looking for the causative factor, they're looking for covering it up. That's right. Doctors treat the result of disease, not the cause of the disease. Right. So the way I, I, I liken it, you know, the first sentence of the first chapter, there's a wasp buzzing around your ass. <laughs> right. What do you do? What do you do? Do you kill the wasp? Or do you find the wasp's nest? Right. You have to work upstream of the problem to solve the problem. Right. Working downstream of the problem just treats the results. And because as soon as you spill that wasp, there are going to be 10 more wasps that are going to sting you right into submission. And it delays the necessary, you know, attention, basically, as well. So, exactly. you know, uh, and of course, the delay can be very costly. And as you, as you speak, as we speak later in the, in the book about uh, the consequence of, of the, the lingering um, subclinical, I meant to say subcellular environments, which are, you know, pathogenic in their nature. But let's, let's talk about the, uh, the you now we've got the, the, the dentist, the doctors that need to unlearn nutrition, the, de- the dietitians that lost their minds, the, the dentists that lost their way. I'm, I'm curious to find out how did Weston Price influence you in your thinking? So first of all, what I want to say is I'm an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> I take the doctors to task. I take the dietitians to task. I right. take the dentists to task right. in this book. And I also take, of course, Big Pharma to task, who profit off all this. Right. Um, Weston Price is one of the heroes of my book. Um, he figured out back in the 1920s and 1930s that sugar was bad for you. Right. Because he went around the entire world looking at the cause of dental caries. And he was the one who basically fingered dietary sugar, and I'm not talking about carbohydrate, I'm talking about sugar, fructose, as the thing that causes dental caries, fermentable carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. And he was right. And because he was right, he is now almost forgotten by modern medicine. And the reason is because... He was so right, and he knew that sugar was a problem, and it's a problem, especially for the addicted, that dentistry went whole hog looking for an answer that didn't involve diet, and in 1945, they thought they'd found it. It was called fluoride. Fluoride, right, exactly. And fluoride was going to basically undo the entire you know, specter of dental caries around the world. And so we started fluoridating drinking water all over the world. And lo and behold, we saw a 30% reduction in dental caries, which, by the way, is still true, and I'm not arguing that. But we have reached a plateau. We have, you know, we have an asymptote at about 25% prevalence of dental caries. 
And the p- reason is because fluoride was never a primary therapy for cavities. It was an adjunct. Mm-hmm. It's, necess- it, it, it's helpful, but it's not helpful alone. Mm-hmm. In fact, you still need dietary uh, manipulation intervention. Mm-hmm. And the dentists, you know, they saw that fluoride was reducing the incidence of dental caries. And what they say? Who's going to fill the seats? <laughs> so they started out lollipops. Right, right. Isn't, it, it's so, just, it's just, so, it's criminal. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just, just, it's, 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 it's criminal. Which, which take, which I, I'm going to get to asking about your legal career upcoming. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Let's, but I appreciate you, you letting us know about Weston Price because he, he's been forgotten and, but not by everyone, but because some of my primary nutrition, nutritional teachers were, were, were students of Weston Price's. So it, it, it was, it was one of the first places that I became, as I was describing before we came on air, I, I myself am a sufferer of uh, metabolic syndrome and, and uh, as a child and was had, a, had a, a, a lot of awful times in my life struggling with the problems that you are so articulately talking about. And, and Weston Price was one of the first voices that I heard that started to make sense to me in terms of something that I could do that would took me in a proper direction. Um, that and also a, a, a guy named um, Roger Williams who wrote a book called Biochemical Individuality. I remember being very excited about that. I don't know if you ever paid attention to that, that either that that principal or that particular uh, professor. But anyway, that those were two inspirational things for me. But let's move on to chronic disease and kind of how that fits into the picture of what the book is about. So, part two is debunking chronic disease, and basically. What I say is that those diseases that I just mentioned before, you know, they are the symptoms of the real pathologies. So there is stuff going on inside your cell, and medicines can't get there. And, and those things that are going on inside your cell are what are causing the true disease. Now, you can use those pathways for your benefit or to your de- detriment. It all depends on you. So if you pay attention to these eight subcellular pathologies, you will be 110 playing tennis. Mm -hmm. If you don't pay attention to the eight pathologies, you will be in a wheelchair with your legs amputated uh, on dialysis waiting for your next stroke at age 40. You know, it's up to you based on these eight pathologies. And I'll name the eight right now. These, none of these have ICD-11 codes. None of these are things doctors talk about. None of these things are, uh, you know, allow doctors to bill. So, you know, basically, no one knows about them. Here they are. One, glycation. Two, oxidative stress. Three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Four, insulin resistance. Five, membrane instability. Six, inflammation. Seven, methylation. And eight, autophagy. Now, each of these are things that go on inside the cell, whether you like it or not. The question is, can you do anything to mitigate it? And the answer is you can mitigate all of them. You can make them all work for you if you ate real food. It's processed food that poisons all eight, and I show in the book how. So processed food is the driver of these pathologies which belie all the chronic diseases that we are now spending 75% of our health care dollars on. And the problem is 
There is no pill for this. None of these are druggable. They're all foodable. You have to fix the mitochondria. You have to fix the insulin response. You have to fix the inflammation. Real food does it. So when I was at UC Medical School in the early or the middle seventies, I took a class from Miriam Nessel. You, you undoubtedly yep. you, you undoubtedly know Miriam, and um, I do, uh, of course. And she didn't talk about these things. So uh, at least she's that, not a doctor. Well, that's also true. Um, but and and actually, I found her. I I actually found her course, even though I was grateful to take it. I found it uninspiring, to be honest, because the 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 the, the world that she was operating out of, which is sort of showed up in the in Coop's uh, nutritional guidances, which were kind of vitamin centric, um, as I recall, anyway. But um, so wh- when when did the the eight subcellular sub subcellular uh, pathologies uh, arise in terms of being a foodable uh, therapeutic? Uh, directions. When, when when did that whole world come together in your mind, and it, 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 is it coming together in the mind of a larger medical community? And, I'm going to say right now it's not coming in, in anyone's mind, which is why I had to write the book. <laughs> okay. Not fair enough. Fair that's enough. Why, that's why the book is necessary, is to alert people to how this works. Right. Um, ultimately, you know, uh, these eight subcellular pathologies are things that scientists talk about, but you know haven't yet figured out how to harness. Mm-hmm. But these are the things that are underlying Alzheimer's. You know, I mean, 140 different drugs, and none of them work. And the reason is because they're not getting to where the problem is. Mm-hmm. They're not actually being able to fix the problem where the problem is. The problem is in the mitochondria. Right. Basically, chronic disease is mitochondrial disease, and we don't have any drugs to fix mitochondria, at least not yet. Oh, there are people who say that we have things like CoQ10 and what have you. They're not getting there. They're actually not getting to where they need to go. Mm-hmm. So food gets it there, okay? But, you know, taking a supplement really doesn't. And so this is this is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, when did this come together for me? Well, you know, sort of over the course of the last decade, you know, as I've realized sort of, what is in processed food? And, you know, I, I kind of, you know, uh, simplify it in the, in the book. You know, there are two processes that have to be met in order to be healthy. And, any, and, and there are two precepts to any food as to whether or not those two, whether that food is healthy. And here they are. Number one, protect the liver. Number two, feed the gut. Six words. Two clauses, okay? Protect the liver, feed the gut. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. Any food that does one or the other but not both is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Now, as it turns out, protecting the liver, what are you protecting it from? Well, you're protecting it from sugar. You're protecting it from branched-chain amino acids. You're protecting it from iron and other other heavy metals. You're protecting it from glyphosate and several other pesticides. Feed the gut. Well, the main thing that the gut eats is fiber. Soluble and insoluble. And they're both necessary. They have They do six things for your health. 
that you know people don't talk about. People basically dump the fiber in the garbage, or they take the fruit, put it in a smoothie machine, uh, take the, that that uh, shears the uh, insoluble fiber to smithereens, so it can't actually do its job. Mm. So basically, you're destroying the single best thing. And people don't even understand that fiber is necessary. It's not necessary for you. It's not food for you. It's food for your microbiome. You know, we always say when pregnant women are eating for two. Right. Well, you're always eating for 100 trillion. Uh huh. And the question is, what do they eat? Well, they eat what you eat. The question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? Wow. When they get fiber, okay, they're happy and they leave you alone. Mm. So if, if you starve them, they end up eating you. They eat the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells and create um, inflammation, leaky gut. Um, things you know get transferred across the GI serosa, like, for instance, lipopolysaccharides, cytokines, bacteria themselves, which all lead to in- systemic inflammation, which drive all these chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. So protect the liver feed the gut. Real food does both. Mm. Processed food does neither. Right. Well, probably you know it, it, in the last 20 years or so, we've we've been able to sort of measure leaky gut syndrome and we've been able to, but what we haven't heard and what is such a, for me, such a, a joy to read in your book is the the articulation of why all these things matter in, in, a, in a useful and sort of digestible way. Um, and so, uh, again, I just, I just just am so, so grateful for the, the efforts that you've obviously put into this. So moving along, we're starting to run a little short on time. So I'm, I'm wanting to talk about um, uh, food in the time of corona. What, say, just say something <laughs> about that because after all, here we are, you know, and so what yeah, do you, here we are. So what do you have to say about that, doctor? So I'm going to say that the NIH and the CDC have gotten it wrong. Okay. They have gotten it wrong. They have told us three things to do. Masking, social distancing, hand washing, all of which are necessary, and I'm totally for all three of those. They missed the fourth, the food. Mm-hmm. So, if you look at who dies from COVID-19, the elderly, because they have immune dysfunction just by being old, and then let's look at the other three demographic groups that are um, hurt by COVID-19 the most. People of color, the obese, diabetics, or pre-existing conditions, basically all chronic metabolic disease we're talking about. Right. So, what do those three groups have in common? Answer? ultra-processed food. Exactly. The data on each of those, very clear. So what does ultra-processed food do to COVID-19? Well, turns out that virus is pretty darn smart. It uses a receptor that sits on all of your cells. That receptor is called ACE2, A-C-E-2. That's the injector point. And it turns out ACE2 is an endocrine receptor. It's angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, something I know something about as an endocrinologist. And it normally is involved in water uh, uh, signaling and movement across the cell membrane. The virus uses that as its injector point. Well, one of the things that makes 
ACE2 go up on the surface of cells is the hormone insulin. Insulin increases ACE2. So when you're insulin resistant and you're hyperinsulinemic, you have basically given COVID-19 an entree into your cells across the board, making it much more likely that you are going to have a fulminant, you know, viral uh, uh, load, uh, you know, that's going to, you know, put your entire body at risk all at once. And that's what we see. And that's why people get sick so fast. Mm-hmm. So the hyperinsulinemia of insulin resistance related to ultra processed food puts you at risk. Mm-hmm. Second, short chain fatty acids are immunosuppressive. They limit the cytokine response. Short chain fatty acids are made by your colonic bacteria with using the substrate of soluble fiber. The soluble fiber in the real food gets converted to short-chain fatty acids, which limit your immune response so you don't become overwhelmed. Because we know it's not the virus that kills you, it's the cytokine response that kills you. And so you have to limit that by having a functional microbiome. But we don't have that because of processed food. And then number three, diabetes. Higher your blood glucose, the more the glucose crystallizes around those ACE2 molecules to hold them open so that the virus has even an easier time injecting its RNA and taking over your cell. So three things that processed food does that increases our risk for COVID-19, and you could turn that around in nine days flat if you ate real food. Mm -hmm. But you ever heard the CDC or the NIH mention food? in any way, shape, or form related to this COVID-19 pandemic? No. You have to wonder why. So, <clears throat> Well, I know why, and you know why. <laughs> right. Well, so now, you know, for those of us who've been on the planet here for a while and going through many of these same processes, we've thought that organic was going to save us. And, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, you say in this book... Oh, sorry about that. So tell us why organic is not going to be a sufficient answer. So organic means no pesticides, no hormones, all all that. And, and, you know, I'm not against organic. I'm for it. You know, I'm I'm for it for the right right foods. Um, If you take a look at the role of pesticides, herbicides, et cetera, uh, in terms of disease, it's about 10%. About 10%. It's not nothing. It's very real. It's measurable. About 10%. The rest of it is the food itself. And that doesn't matter if it's organic or not. So it's the food adulterations, it's the food additions, it's the food subtractions, all of which can still be organic. If you shop at Whole Foods, okay, you, you know, and you're, and you're buying all organic, okay, you're going to die just as easily if you're eating the same crap. Okay? You're just going to pay more for the privilege. Because the organic part of it is actually a minor part. Not mm-hmm. nothing. It's real, but it's, you know, dwarfed by the actual macronutrients in the food that are poisoning your mitochondria. And, and of course, that's the, the, the well, the, 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 another pivot point for those of us who are actually concerned about health and well-being in terms of, you know, we're having to really re, you know, re, reposition ourselves with regard to this whole conversation. And what you've done in this book so successfully is simply demand 
that we that we that we do exactly that, assuming we're choosing to do the best we can for ourselves. So we're almost out of time, uh, Professor Lustig. If there's any uh, final words that we should share with our listeners, uh, or th- maybe you should mention your website and other things that where people can reach out and get get more information. So the thing I want to leave your audience with is you cannot solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And we have been told that different things are the problem. We've been told saturated fats are the problem. We've been told total calories are the problem. We've been told a whole lot of things over the last 50 years, and none of them are true. We have been propagandized. And if you don't know what the problem is, you can't solve it. What I, the reason I wrote this book was to make it very clear with the empiric science, and there are 1,054 references in this book. It could be a textbook for medical schools, and I actually hope it will be. I do, too. Um, it's, a, it's, it's written for the general public, but I'm actually hoping that medical schools will pick it up. But you've got to look at the science in order to solve a problem. And we have not done that. We have been led astray by the propagandists over the last 50 years. I'm trying to fix that. And that's why I hope everyone will recognize this is a problem for you because everyone eats, okay? Everyone has their own very specific, distinct relationship with food, as they should, but they need to understand it in order to take advantage of it. My, my website is robertlustig.com. Also, the book has its own website, metabolical.com. All the references are there, so you can click on a, re- on a reference and go straight to the primary literature. And, you know, there's a lot of expose, and there's some, you know, fun tidbits in there for your own health. So, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote it for everybody. Well, and I want to tell, tell our listeners, I mean, as I sat down with this book and I've spent a lot of time with it, it's... It's, I, I can't call it a fun read because it's so serious and so honorable. And that's the other part I, I, that I want to leave our listeners with is that the, the, the part of the sort of the, one of the heartbreaking parts about, about medicine is, is that it's so much of it's built on untruths. And what, I, what this book stands out for me and just gives me a wonderful feeling all through my body really is, is that it's, this is book is standing up for authenticity, standing up for truth, standing up for real science, and standing up for real integrity. So, Robert Lustig, what a pleasure to have you on Health Matters Radio, and thanks so very much for doing this book for us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, helping me get it out there, uh, Dr. Hoke. It's, it, it's been a labor of love and uh, you know, passion project. Oh. Got to fix the problem. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Good day now.